grab a Bible if you have one. Great. If you don't, there's some on the back table. You can have one. Uh, take it with you. Keep it. Give it to somebody else. Take ten of them. We have tons of Bibles. I'll always have Bibles. Um, or if you got one on your phone, scroll. That works fine, however you want to do it. Some of what we talk about today will be on the screen. Not all of it. Uh, part of that is it's not me being stubborn. That's me wanting you to have it in your hand. So the more you can look down at the word in your own hand, the more you feel like you're carrying it out of here and not just watching it and going home. So as I say, some will be up there, some will go into. We're in Acts. We've been following the story of God for a pretty good while. We started in Genesis. I'm not going to go all the way back and say it all. But we just followed through the Bible the story of God, hitting points along the way, uh, over 70 now, points along the way of where God has acted in his in history, through his word. So at this point in the game, we are now at the time of the church. Christ has already died uh, and risen from the grave, returned to heaven, and established disciples who are starting to grow the church. Uh, last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit moving into those disciples' hearts and lives and beginning to just explode the gospel into the world. So, Today, it might feel a little heavier, but trust me, it's a beautiful thing where we're at now. So we're in Acts chapter um, 7, technically. We'll cover a few things, but we'll, we'll come back. You walk with me here in a second. You'll see what I'm saying. We'll move through Acts. But let me ask you, because the question is, what would you say? And that's a, that's a funny question by itself. But let me give you context for that. What would you say if a cashier... If you approach the cashier and you have the option of Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays, you know what I mean? That was a big deal there for a while. What would you say? Well, that's an easy, quick decision for some of you. You might even have a powerful conviction about that. I'll tell you what I'm saying. Uh, but what would you say if the answer to that question, the context of that question, involved torture or death? You might not run into it so fast. So... I'm going to put these up here because the thing I'm addressing today is martyrs, and I'm going to leave them sitting here. But these are just some of the books in my life that have, I have a whole shelf full, but these in particular that have changed me radically. And they're all martyrs. They're all about people who have died for their faith. In fact, this one is... Written by one, but it is a, like a theology of the Bible on martyrs and suffering from the first part of the book, from, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the whole thing. I, I, I have been shaken and moved by martyrs in my faith big time. And the stories, the names, the dates, the events, the locations, like the facts are all there. These things occurred. They didn't just occur way back when. They occur now. And so for me, the big question that messed up my faith was, why don't they just say what needs to be said and then escape the situation? And then they can go right back to preaching again or doing whatever they, they, they were doing before. It never occurred to me that the people that are attacking them need to hear the gospel too. And the only way you're going to share the gospel with somebody who hates you for it is to accept being attacked and or tortured and or whatever. It never crossed my mind. The way 
To hear it is to accept being attacked. It never occurred to me that a martyr might be more effective than a preacher. I know it's a bit heavy. Hold with me a minute. That a martyr might be more effective than a preacher. It might... A surrendered life, somebody who lays their life down, that might actually be more powerful than all of the books and all of the science experiments and all those things. Our entire faith, in fact, is built on one who, rather than establish a megachurch, went to a cross. Our whole faith is established around that. And we call it blindly trusting in something. Uh, but they call it faith in not what they blindly trust, but what they know. They call it faith in who they know. So much faith, in fact, in it that they're willing to accept torture. They're willing to accept death. They're willing to accept any of that and let their life be evidence for others to see that they do know who the Lord is and that he's real. Those things can't be faked. You can't cheat that. It's got to be real. So, quick, I always give you one quick point. Here's your one quick point. Uh, We can expect the Holy Spirit to give us a defense for our faith. Yes, we can. But it may include dying. It may include that. But that always advances the kingdom of God. I'm trying to scare you today. I'm giving you the word today. All right. Last week was the Holy Spirit and hooray, hurrah, you know, all that. Today's a little heavier. But there's a point. We're following the story of God. And it's a beautiful thing. Okay. I know it don't seem like it in the front. But bear with me. It is because my faith that I'm standing here with you guys today because of these people. I'm not kidding. Like because of these people. All right. So. Uh, let's back up and get the story really quick. So grab your Bible. We were in Acts chapter 2, all right? Back up to Acts chapter 4. So what's ended up happening really quick is the church was born in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes down and descends, all right? And then these people have this gift and this ability to speak to other languages and to be able to tell the whole world the gospel in all of these languages now. Everybody's gathered together and they're learning the gospel. They're learning the Bible. They're becoming disciples. They're learning these things. At the same time, the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem who killed Jesus not long ago are somewhat tolerant of this at the moment because they're thinking that, oh, it'll blow over. You know, Jesus is dead. It'll go away eventually. However, these apostles start to do miracles. These 12 that were with Jesus start to do miracles just like Jesus did. And just like with Jesus, the crowds are filled with awe. And the crowds are starting to become more than disciples. They're starting to become radically convinced of who Jesus is and and the gospel. And these apostles are preaching very openly in the streets. Peter, John, all of them. And ultimately, Peter and John are arrested and interrogated by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the religious leaders. So basically, they're taken to court. And they're put in front of a religious congress, you could say, in the temple. And they're on trial. And they're grilled by the Sanhedrin for what they're doing. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 7, it says, When they had set them in their midst, they asked, By what power or what name do you do this? And then Peter, look what it says. I'm just noting some things here. Filled with the Holy Spirit, said, and he spoke. So Peter 
it's noting to you, not just that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. The point of putting that there is that the words coming out of Peter's mouth are not Peter's own words, in a sense. That the Spirit is moving Peter to speak. And he says what he says. You can read this in your own time. We're moving quick. Verse 12, one key note that he makes is there is salvation in nobody else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Nobody else but Jesus. He says it black and white. There's no other way, period, whatsoever. And he says it to these guys. All right. And then verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were just fishermen, probably had a third grade education. These guys are astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that line. Man, what a trophy to have. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. They tell them not to preach anymore, and they let them go because they're afraid of the crowds. What do they do? They go right back, straight back out, and start preaching again. And the church grows, and miracles increase, and people are being healed, and demons are being cast out. And so guess what? They get arrested again. And while they're being held in jail overnight, an angel comes and lets them out of jail. Man, you got out on that one, guys. What a blessing. But they return the next morning to the same street they'd just been arrested on, having escaped jail, and start doing the same thing they were jailed for in the first place, which was preaching again. So these guys have this Sanhedrin has them brought right back in again. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31... Peter says to them, as they're on trial again here, God exalted Jesus to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, to give forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's still bringing the Spirit into this. Whom God has given to those who obey him. So who gets the Holy Spirit? Those who follow Christ. How much and when? immediately has given to those who obey and follow Christ. says it. So, now they're determined to kill him. Now they're like, okay, well, we've moved past talk now. We're going to kill you. You're dead man. But there's a guy named Gamaliel among them. He's a very respected Pharisee. He steps up and he says, hey, let's let him go. Because if this is not from God, it will fade away. And if it is from God, then we may find ourselves enemies of God in this whole thing. So let's just let him go. He persuades them. They let him leave. But they beat him first. They have him whipped and beaten. And then they release him. So you think we're done now? No. Chapter 5, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, having just been beaten, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. For Jesus. Worthy to suffer. Rejoicing. These are just words we don't put together. Verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus, that the Messiah is Jesus. Right back. Right back. Day to day to day. Right back. And again, the church explodes exponentially. It's so much so that they can't take care of all of the needs. So they assign deacons, which just means servants. These are just people who will be making sure that the needs are met within the church when people have them. And you can assume now something is going to explode. 
you know, this, this thing, this tension is now building to where something's going to explode. And that brings us to Stephen. Stephen, along with these other guys, is doing signs, miracles, and different things like that. And he gets challenged by some of the radical religious Jewish people. And they bring charges against him or accusations. So let's go in there. And this is where we'll kind of move through. I'm not reading all of Stephen. You can read all of it in your own time. I'm focusing on the event that's happening. In Acts chapter 6, go over there, moving forward. Um, I'm going to start in verse 10. It says, They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Again, the spirit. Again, you see this? The Holy Spirit is involved in all of this. All right? Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Interesting. Blasphemy against Moses. Come on, man. But blasphemy against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They, they just kind of try to incite a mob just like they did with Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him. Well, in a sense, that's kind of what's going on. Man, this guy's talk. He speaks against Moses. He speaks against God. And so they came up and they seize him and they bring him to the council. So before it was Peter and John, now Stephen's up there. All right, now Stephen's standing in front of him. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man, Stephen, never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. That's the word Torah. That just means your Bible. Basically, in what they had then, the Old Testament. Verse 14. For we have heard him say this, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, this temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, that literally means they look... Beady-eyed stare straight at him. They all turn angrily and focus their eyes like lasers on him. All who sat in the council, and they saw that his face was like an angel. That does not mean the sweet little cute angel things you're thinking about. That means his face was glowing, hard to look at. Maybe even frightening. Was it? Bright light, I don't know. They don't know how to, that's why it says, like an, like an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? Blasphemy against God? Blasphemy against Moses? Speaking against the temple? Speaking against the Torah? Leading people to follow Jesus who claimed he would destroy the temple and claimed he'd change the customs of Moses? Are those things true? What would you say? I mean, put yourself there a minute. What would you say? The truth is, neither Stephen nor Jesus ever said anything against the temple. The temple was built according to Scripture. That was God's plan. They never said anything. In fact, they both participated in it religiously. They went to the temple. They were part of the temple. And Acts, we already read it. Acts says that the church that we're talking about now went day by day to the temple to pray. There was no hatred for the temple. Obviously, he doesn't have a hatred for Moses or the Torah either because he uses Scripture as his response. He says, fine, you want to bring the Torah up? We'll talk from the Torah. He uses it, and you can read it in your own time. I'll hit a piece or two of it, but he uses the Torah to respond, or the Bible. 
That is one of the most mistaken approaches in sharing the gospel that we have. Typically, when we go to try to tell somebody about God or tell somebody about Jesus, we have a handful of verses. Maybe it's John 3.16, God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him not perish, have eternal life. As soon as somebody challenges that, for whatever reason, we tend to leave the book and start to have a logical argument. And we start to try to persuade a win. And then most times we leave frustrated. Or they do. And you got your win. They're frustrated. You won the argument. You know? That's not what's... Go to the word, man. Like if you want to win a football game, you better know the rules and you better get on the football field. This is the field. Know the word. You got to get in the word. And that's literally what he does. Stephen gives the story of God, just like we've been doing. He literally gives them a scripture lesson, takes them back to Abraham, leads them through Joseph and Moses and David, all the way down to the temple that they're accusing him of speaking against. You can read it in your own time. And then in verse verse 48, though, when he comes to David and the temple and all that, in verse 48, he says, But the Most High, God, does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make everything? Stephen is turning to quote Psalms and Isaiah here. God doesn't live in temples made by man. God made everything. What makes you think he lives in in a temple made by man? Well, the Jews didn't think he lived there. The Jews just knew that they connected with him there, which was true. But what's happened now is these leaders are operating like they have some kind of contain or control of God in their building. And you can't destroy this building because it's our building. You can't speak against this building because it's our building where we house God. And, in fact, God is not dwelling in the building. God is dwelling in Stephen. That's the crazy part of this moment. The Holy Spirit is in Stephen. It's like they're arguing about this temple, the temple standing in front of them at this point. All right. So verse uh, chapter seven, verse 51, he goes on. He says, you stiff necked people. I mean, stubborn is the word. I mean, imagine this now. (laughs) He just said all this and now he's making it real personal. You stubborn people. Your hearts are uncircumcised and your ears are too. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit's a topic. You always resist him. Your fathers did it and so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? God sent all these prophets to his people. And his people persecuted and killed them all. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. You can go back and read them all. Uh, And he's saying... They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of Jesus, the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you now betrayed and murdered. So they killed those who were announcing Jesus' coming. You killed Jesus. And you received the law as it was delivered by angels, but you don't keep it. You, you, you call the word, the law, the Bible, the Torah, whatever you call it, holy, but you don't, you don't keep it. Stephen's like a prophet here, man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and he's speaking. And the only thing Stephen is doing wrong is the same thing Jesus did. And that's say, woe to you, hypocrites. And that's not wrong. 
Verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. You know, that's what that means. Like furious and biting their teeth. But this is huge. Now, their response to this moment is going to establish what they think about people who follow Jesus. This is bigger than Stephen in the moment. Now, whatever, however they respond at this point is going to establish their position with followers of Jesus. And the crazy thing is, persecution always advances the kingdom of God. Always. Persecution always advances the kingdom of God. So at this point, if you're Stephen, what do you say? Do you say anything else? Do you stop talking? Stephen could have stopped. They had nothing to condemn him with at this point. I mean, he made a defense of himself, and it was a pretty good one. He did call them guilty of some things, but he hadn't done a crime. He's defended himself in a sense. They don't have anything on him yet, really. And that's probably half the reason they're so mad. You keep your mouth shut and walk away. Luke chapter 12, verse 11 Jesus said when they, to his disciples, he said, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers, religious rulers, and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So it means that the Holy Spirit will speak. He will give you the words in that hour. If not in that hour, don't claim this verse. This verse is not about the Holy Spirit speaking for you when... Ever you open your mouth. This is about the Holy Spirit speaking for you when you haven't got the words and you're terrified. Or maybe you have an opportunity to make defiance and should I. Either way, he's in this moment and the Holy Spirit's going to give him the words to say. And what does the Holy Spirit give him to say? Look, uh, man, listen, Jesus moves a chess piece forward here. Not a pawn, more like a knight. Jesus moves a chess piece. The Holy Spirit pushes Stephen into an obvious kill shot. You understand what I'm saying when I say that? The Holy Spirit moves him into a place. Look, verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. I don't know what does that look like. A throne and Jesus standing at the right hand. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they rushed at him. Listen, man, saying he's at the right hand of God, that was that's symbolism. It doesn't mean he's physically standing one side. The point it could be, but the point he's coming to is he's the power to be the right hand. In that culture meant you were the power and authority. You were the punch. You were the knockout punch. Anybody's right hand meant that they were the authority, the rule, the power, the strength, the judge, all of that. He's saying that's where Jesus is now. That's the Jesus you killed. That's where he's. And I see him. Why would God do that? Why would the Holy Spirit show that to Stephen in this moment and open his mouth? I've heard people say, too, that 
Jesus is standing there, and it is a unique statement. It is the one time you see Jesus standing, not sitting. Everywhere else it refers to this. It says seated at the right hand, standing. Uh, I'm not digging too deep into this because it's only speculation. Some say that's because Jesus was proud of Stephen. Jesus was standing to encourage Stephen, to welcome him. I don't know if any of that's true, but it is a unique, interesting thing. But imagine, let's bring this to our world. Imagine you've just defended your faith with somebody who is attacking you with it. And you have convinced them, or at least you've argued well, that Jesus was crucified and Jesus is resurrected. Here's all the evidence. Here's all the proof. 500 witnesses. Jesus is alive. You, you've, you've made a compelling argument. And there's a pause. But then you press on. And there's no other name. There's no other way. He's it. He is absolute power he is absolute authority he's the judge he's the one you have to answer to he's the one you're going to stand in front of now imagine this conversation is between you and some muslims in iran what do you think that's going to be like people do that every day today some of these books Mention people I've met in my lifetime, Mali too, in other countries, not here, in the places where they were killed. Trial's over. It's mob rule now. Man, these guys are coming unglued. Verse 58, they cast him out of the city. They had him drug out and they stoned him. And they, it says, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep or he died. Same language. Leviticus twenty four sixteen gives us the rules for stoning. I'm not going to read them. You can look all that stuff up in your own time. But what ends up happening here is they lead him to a cliff that's about 10 feet high at least or more. And they strip him down and they throw him. One of the uh, people who is charging him throws him off the cliff. And then the rest of those who are there, the, the people who have been offended, the ones who are charging him first, have to throw the first stones. And then after that, all the people present have to throw stones. Nobody gets to watch. It's not a show. It's an execution. And everybody has to participate. And so they would throw him off this cliff, and then they would either stand above and drop rocks, or they would come down in front and throw them at him against whatever cliff they had dropped him in front of. Listen, the gospel is never neutral. This whole name it and claim it stuff, this is the, this is the greatest moment in church history. The church is exploding this is what where's Stevens like claim it? God filled him with the Holy Spirit and he said these words that are now getting him executed. And God love him, but in a bad way. The gospel's never neutral. The gospel will always, if you communicate it honestly, it will always cause conflict. Always. Because it will either cause someone to confront their sin or to walk away from you. Always. If you, if you communicate it, well, you might not be present for it. It might happen later. But if you communicate the gospel correctly, they're either going to have to confront their sin or they're going to confront you. 
one of the two. Look at, uh, let's get the last little piece of it here. Chapter 8, going on, verse 1. Saul approved of his execution. <clears throat> and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. These are all parts of Israel, except the apostles. So the twelve apostles, they stay in Jerusalem. The rest are being scattered. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So much of Stephen's death reflects Jesus' death here. Did you catch that? I went over it quick, but let me point it back out to you. In Mark 14, verse 62, Jesus said this when he was on trial. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of the glory of heaven. Jesus said to the people who were accusing him, you're going to see me in this place. Stephen said he saw that. Verse 63, this high priest tore his garments then with Jesus. What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? They all condemned him to death. So same thing with Stephen. Stephen sees that that is a reality now, says it. They say blasphemy, condemn him to death. Both Stephen and Jesus are drugged outside the city and executed there. Stephen's last words, you see what they said? Into your hands, Jesus, I commit my spirit. Jesus said, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Uh, He said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Jesus, same words, devout men came and took Stephen's body and buried him. Devout followers of Christ who were among the Sanhedrin actually came and took Jesus' body and buried him. For his, listen, I'm not pointing this out randomly. For his disciples, even our deaths picture Christ. If you are a disciple of Jesus, this is great, man. This is great. I know it sounds bad, but it's not. It's great. It means that no part of your life is wasted. Not even your death. Like to say, does my life have meaning? Does my life, every bit of it, every ounce of it, even your last breath has epic meaning if you are a follower of Christ. Like God is using Stephen's death here to paint a picture of Jesus perfectly and what happens you're going to see in just a second but the church man it explodes the church spreads like crazy and he also introduces this guy Saul you might think that's random that's not random at all Saul is a very important person Saul's from a town called Tarsus which was in uh, Cilicia it was a Roman province in modern day Turkey so that's where this guy is from Saul's parents were both Jews from the tribe of Benjamin Saul's name comes from the first king of Israel who was from the tribe of Benjamin right before David. And we don't know how, but in some way, Saul's family had got Roman citizenship as well. So that basically means they had all the rights of a Roman citizen, but they were Jews. His family moves to Jerusalem, and Saul becomes educated in the the Torah and scriptures and all of these things in the synagogue schools, which all kids were. But he was so good, so smart, and grew so fast that he was connected to a legendary rabbi named Gamaliel, which I mentioned before. Same guy. He becomes a disciple of this guy. And he advances way ahead of everybody else his age. Galatians 1.14, Paul said that in his own words. He was far ahead of everybody in his zeal. And knowledge of the word. He was fluent in Greek. He's fluent in Hebrew. He's fluent in Aramaic. He's an expert in culture. 
He knows Rome. He knows Israel. He knows all these. He knows Greek. He's a tent maker by trade. He knows how to work for a living. So it's no surprise that this man gets chosen by the Sanhedrin because of his zeal and his knowledge and his ability to begin to destroy this movement of Jesus' followers. And Saul didn't just accept the opportunity. He sought it. He wanted it. Please give me the chance to be the one that does this. His own words. Acts chapter 9. You'll see it later in verse 1. He says that that, that, that was his goal. So, following Jesus is now officially heretical. It is now officially punishable by law and even death. And there is now... A hitman assigned to find every one of you men, women, children who claim to follow it. What do you do? But remember, this is the story of God, not us. Jesus said it would happen. John 15, verse 18, almost done. He says, if the world hates you, Jesus said to his disciples beforehand. No, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, then the world would love you like you're you're its own. But because you're not of this world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they what? Will also persecute you. Not might also, not maybe also, will also persecute you. But like I said before, in the kingdom of God, persecution is like trying to put out a fire by throwing dry straw and gasoline on it. Look at verse 4, chapter 8, last verse here that we'll look at out of this text. Acts 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered did what? Went about preaching the word. This act has caused the word of God to go everywhere. And even Saul will run into Jesus. And Saul will become Paul. God didn't change his name. That's a misunderstanding. He chose a different name. He chose to go by Paul, probably his Greek name on his own. Maybe he didn't want to be associated with that past person. But either way, Saul becomes Paul after running into Jesus. And Paul writes most of the New Testament, including Acts, more or less. Acts was written by Luke, but Luke was a disciple with Paul. So this very guy, Saul, that we're talking about becomes the author of most of the New Testament, follower of Jesus. Is God wrong for persecution? Are martyrs evidence that Jesus is cruel? Well, let's not forget that when he himself came here, we were the ones that were cruel. We were the ones that put him on a cross. We were the ones that mocked him and spit at him. We were the ones that did all that, yet he loved us anyway. Uh, uh, excuse me, Romans eight, uh, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The best evidence, guys, of God's reality is martyrs. They don't pray to get out of the situation. Because if they get out, they go right back. Peter and John did it over and over and over. 
Richard Wormbrandt, he's responsible for a couple of these books. He was arrested in Romania in 1948. He was released after eight years in the underground prison. He had a wife and a kid. Both of them were arrested. Well, the wife was arrested and his kid was left homeless. And anybody that tried to take him in was considered an enemy of the state. This is 1948. We're not talking about in Roman days. Two years he was... After eight years, he was released, and for two years, he continued to preach anyway, despite warnings that he'd be arrested again. And he went right back, five and a half more years, total 14 years. He was tortured horrifically in that prison. I won't go into all of it, along with others. But he accepted and loved that God considered him the one who would preach the gospel to these torturers. It's like, how can you be that way unless it's true? You know what I mean? Uh, Umar is a guy in Uganda, Uganda in present day. He's a Muslim cleric. He got saved. He started a church. Hundreds started getting saved. Muslim men broke in, threw acid on his face, and acid down his back. He lost an eye. He's covered in scars. And he asked for prayer. Why? That he would heal quick so he could get back. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you're from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. First Peter four nineteen. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator who, while doing good, it might be God's will that you suffer. It might not be God's will that you're healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Uh, Revelation 6, and this is a powerful one. This is looking to the future. Revelation 6, 9 says, and I know there's some figurative, some symbolism here, but it doesn't even matter. Just look what he's saying. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been what? Slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. That would be martyrs. So John is seeing this vision. John says, under the altar, I see martyrs. And then he says, they cried out with a loud voice, Oh Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long is this going to go on? Then they were each given white robes and they were told, Rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. It's not an accident. It's a plan. No part of me wants this end to my life. I'm not lying to you. I'm going to be totally transparent with you. I am not up here all holy saying, I hope we all die as martyrs. <laughs> I promise. I don't want that. I don't know if that will happen. And I hope if it does happen in my life, that I'm faithful all the way to the end. I hope and pray that that's the case. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, If your life is a witness of Jesus, could your death be? And what does it say about your faith? That's what I'm asking. You guys stand up with me. We're we're done here. Um, And I'm going to pray. But if you all stand with me and just take a moment, close your eyes, uh, and let's pray. And let's just talk to the Lord right before we do this last song. But I want to encourage you, if you're here today, and you, you, know, you don't know him, 
and maybe this has been like, wow, this is heavy. I'm not sure I want to get into all this. We all face death. We all face it. But as Paul said, for the glory of what's beyond that death, this suffering is such a trivial little thing. Can you say that? Can you look at your own heart in your own life and can you say, man, nobody can take the joy of salvation from me. Nobody. Nothing. If you can't, Listen, today you can settle that real easy. You don't need a note from me. You don't need any of that. All you need to do is tell him. You simply tell him, Jesus, I don't have all the answers, but I'm trusting that you are who you say you are. I know that I need you because I know I'm a sinner. I know I am. Nobody's got to tell me that. I know it. And I need you. And I want you in my life. I want to follow you. And regardless of what my death looks like, I trust you. If you can say that to him, then do it. You can say it however you want. And I can promise you, based on his word and my own life, that if you can say that to him from your heart, you will have the same Holy Spirit dwelling within you that dwelled within all of these men in this church and these women in this church and these children in this church and those in the church that you're standing in now. Lord, I love you. You are amazing, and I pray, God, that you have... Oh, you know what, Lord? I I know you have a plan. I praise you that you do. I know you got a plan. And, And I said it earlier, Lord, I'm not looking to be... None of us are looking for suffering. I don't think anybody is. Nobody's chasing after that. I'm I'm not looking for that. But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us in such a way that if we faced it, our faith would be stronger. That our faith would be on display for others to see. How can she deal with that so calmly? How can she be at peace when they're saying all of these things about her? Or when they're doing all of these things or behaving this way or, or hurting him or... Whatever it is, Lord, how can he go there and talk to those people who hate Jesus? Lord, let that be something in us that others see and are moved by. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.